Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks for being with us uh, this morning. Well, this is week three in our series, The Big D, We Need to Talk, What the Bible Says About Divorce and Remarriage. Some of you are going, oh, no, it's okay. Like we found out last week in Canada, 70,000 marriages fall apart every single year. That's 192 a day. In North America, the honest truth is this, no matter Christian or non-Christian or anything in between, 200,000 couples get divorced before their second wedding anniversary. But this next one is most important for us this morning. It's been estimated that after 10 years of marriage, only 25% of first-time marriages are successful, meaning they're either intact or they're happy. Like we all know, one in two marriages fall apart in divorce, and the many that are still intact are far from happy. Let me review a few things from last week. All of us here, if we're honest, have been touched by this. Either we've been through a divorce, we've instigated a divorce, we are children of a divorce, and we all have friends and family that are or are going through this very painful reality. I know that when this topic comes up, even the mention of the D word, all sorts of thoughts, emotions, and ideas sort of boil to the surface. It's like, I said this last week, like picking a scab, things like fear and anger and then relief and pain and unforgiveness, betrayal, lost dreams, and then, oh my goodness, God and church is added and it's just too much. Some of you are thinking, this is my first time to church ever or in years, and, and this is what I get. And oh, by the way, John, did you forget it was Mother's Day? Are you joking? Others of you just want to get up and run. The pain's too close to home. But I say to you this morning as a fellow journeyer, take heart. God has ordained you to be here with us today for a reason. You don't know why God has brought you here yet. He's holy, but he's also loving. He's full of grace and truth. So let's stop and do what we did last week. Let's all pray and take a moment to pray so we can hear clearly. So let's all just pray together. God, we come to you right now, and let's be honest. Some of us before you, and you know this because you know all, we're very fearful that this has just been mentioned. Others of us have just welled up in anger. Some of us are just so tired of this conversation. It's old pain. Others of us, it's just so new and fresh. God, I ask for people today, seekers, non-seekers, new believers, and long-time Christians, help us all at this moment to hear, to see, to experience, and know what you are really saying this morning. So here's our simple cry, Abba. Daddy, comfort us. Give us peace. We need you close right now even to have this conversation. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who knows us better than ourselves. Amen. So, before we get into what Paul says, we hung out with Jesus last week. Today we're hanging out with Paul. Let me review a few things. There's one key verse in the Bible that summarizes this whole conversation for us. It's Malachi 2.6. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, so guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. I hate divorce. Well, that's as plain as it gets. God hates divorce, but don't misread this. It doesn't say that God hates those who have been through divorce. This is not just some moral statement by God up in the heavens. It is an emotional, evocative statement. God himself has been through a divorce with his own people. That's next week's message, and he hates it. Let me quote last week again. I think one wrote it best when he said, divorce, in the Bible at least, is permitted only because of one thing. People sin. 
We mess up since divorce is only a concession of people's sin and it's not part of God's original plan for any marriage. All believers should hate divorce as God does and only pursue it when there is no other recourse. With God's help, he reminds us, a marriage can survive even the worst of sins. Now last week we looked together as a community at Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage, which if you weren't here, I beg you, please go back on iTunes or our website and listen. Today's conversation is like the next chapter in a book, and you'll not fully understand the story without the previous chapters. Today we turn to Paul and his dealing with divorce and remarriage and marriage and sex and singleness and so much more. So if you have a Bible, I'd love you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't have one, it's going to be on the screens on each side for you to follow along. This passage, and it's important we hear this this morning, is chronologically the earliest in the New Testament dealing with this issue. 1 Corinthians was written down before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Did you know that? This is an earlier conversation. So Paul here is responding to questions from this new and growing church, which was living in a city very similar to Toronto. I love a guy named Nick Page's description of the city called Corinth, which gives us the real context for our conversation this morning. Corinth, he writes, was one of the most cosmopolitan, one of the most multicultural cities in the ancient world. Sound like Toronto? A huge, wealthy trade center, but it was also at that time in Greek culture a byword for debauchery and corruption. It was like a kind of mixture between London, Las Vegas, and Amsterdam. You could say Toronto, Las Vegas, and Amsterdam. Just think about that. That's quite a city. Such was the emphasis at that moment in time on sex that that the Greeks living within the Roman Empire used to use the word to Corinthianize as a verb. If someone was doing a bit of Corinthianing, they were sleeping around. The atmosphere of that city seeped into the local church, turning the group of followers of Jesus into people infected by wealth inappropriately and sex. The Corinthian church had many signs of being a true church, but Also, he writes, we're behaving like well-spoiled little brats rather than the children of God. So into that very complicated and yet that very normal urban reality, Paul begins to respond. Now to start, here's the context. Some Christians were saying that now you've become a follower of Jesus, you shouldn't have sex anymore. It's time, they said, to be holy. Sex is a, is a base thing, they said, a, a physical thing. It's dirty. Actually, it could be satanic. And now you're a Christian. You don't need to do that anymore, even with your spouse. This is an extreme response to the city of Corinth and even people in the church. Well, how does Paul respond? <laughs> he comes and says, uh, no, 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 no. You've got this all wrong. Though being single, he says, is good. He's about to say, if you are married, you need to start having more sex or you're going to be tempted to do other sexual acts that actually will break your marriage. And as he's already pointed out in this letter, sexual misconduct had become a plague on the local church. Don't set yourself up, he would say, for more Corinthianizing was the coming cry of Paul. Verse 1 reads like this. Now to the matters you wrote me about. It's good for a man not to marry. Paul writes in saying celibacy and in singleness, it's a good thing. We all hear this and our modern reaction for most is at least, what? What planet or drug is this guy on? No sex? Right, Paul. This is going to get so many more people to church. Let's use it as our new vision statement as Crothers Creek, our new slogan, celibacy. Let's celebrate or no sex, who's in? (laughs) But remember, 
Paul is responding to certain questions. So let's let a very wise, mature follower of, Christ, follower of Jesus talk. He gets it better than most, so watch. He says, look, verse 2, Since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Immorality, it's a Greek word we talked about last week when Jesus deals with divorce and remarriage. It's the word porneia. We got our modern word, what does everyone think? I love that pornography. Pornography from. Now, speaking to this non-Jewish audience, the word actually has two sexual meanings. Don't get offended by this. This is exactly just what the word in itself means, immorality. It first of all means adultery, to have a romantic or sexual relationship with a man or woman who's not your lawful spouse, porneia. But porneia also means, at least in the biblical context, any illicit sexual physical action banned by Scripture. It actually is found and rooted in passages like Leviticus 18, so incest and homosexuality, lesbianism, prostitution, molestation, bestiality, fornication. It's a catch-all word. I would actually now include in the modern culture online sex and for some the sinful habit pattern of pornography that begins to replace your spouse. See, the word really communicates a violation of the covenant of companionship found in biblical marriage through the introduction of a third party, and I'd say physical or virtual. The third party becomes a companion usually, but not always in a sexual way. So we all ask, uh, what does Paul say the remedy for pornea is, at least for married couples? Does he say, oh no, it's time to read your Bible more. No, it's time to go to the prayer meeting. More fellowship, more small groups. He says, no, though that's all good. Married people, I have one thing to say to you. It is time to get it on. Seriously, modern vernacular. A husband should have his wife, and a wife should be having her husband. You should be having regular sex. Regular sex should be the norm and should prevail. Happy Mother's Day to some of you. (laughs) Yeah, I love doing this at church. Yeah, there's clapping. Some people are like, I can't believe this is church. But let me stop and say this. This And this is very important. Gentlemen, if you are married, never forget... And this is just a counseling moment. Sex never starts in the bedroom with our spouses. It's how we treat them. One of the greatest things Wayne told me before I was married is, you wooed your wife before she was your wife. If you stop doing that afterwards, you'll lose your marriage. This is exactly what Paul is getting to here. So let me say something. Gentlemen especially, start, yeah, start wooing your wives. Ladies? Yeah, okay. Good. Let's keep going with the Apostle Paul. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also belongs to his wife. Each marriage partner has rights. Each owes this to each other. Notice, though, and it's important, that Paul, in a male-dominated society, says that the husband must give himself to the wife and the wife to the husband. It is, here it is, mutual. It is not coerced, it is not abusive, and it should be done in a healthy way regularly. But did you catch it? 
He says now, you don't own your own body. You cannot use your body the way you want to or will. Paul has no time for sex as an act of control. Since you are now married and the body is not yours to possess but belongs to your spouse, uh, we need to give it each other sexually. Well, doesn't that fly in the modern chant? It's my own body. I can do what I want with it. Paul says, absolutely not. If you're a Christian, A, your body's owned by Jesus, and second of all, if you're married, it's owned by your spouse. See, Paul forces us as Jesus followers to look at life not through the modern lens of my rights, but by selfless communal love. He continues, do not deprive each other, uh, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a, for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come back together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do not deprive each other. The word deprive can read like this. Do not defraud each other. Do not deceive each other. Do not swindle or cheat each other by not having sex with each other. Now, he says there is a time not to have sex, and that time is to fast and pray. If you're married and a Christian here this morning, when was the last time or occasion you took time to pray and fast from the act of sex for your marriage? Pray about this church. Pray about this church's future. A major issue you were facing. uh, The salvation of a neighbor, a friend, an enemy. Well, most of you are sheepishly saying, uh, never. Paul importantly points out that there must be mutual consent, but then reminds us to come back together after this spiritual discipline because the kingdom of darkness will take advantage of the situation. The devil for Paul is not some allegory for sort of evil. He means it. Fallen angels that hate you because you are followers of Christ will tempt and offer situations to destroy your marriage and also destroy our testimony for Jesus. He says healthy sex is spiritual warfare. Healthy sex is spiritual warfare. Paul, knowing where people's thoughts would go, quickly clarifies a few other issues and then goes back to verse 1. He says, look, I say this as a concession not a command. I wish, he says, that all men were like I was, Uh, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Paul was single and he loved it and he viewed it, it's important, as a holy calling. Paul was likely married, but either he was a widower or his wife had actually left him because he'd become a follower of Jesus. Now without blemishing or embarrassment, he says, I'm single, and I think a lot more of you should be single too in the church. He calls singleness, by the way, a gift, a supernatural gift. The same word used in the Bible for teaching, prophecy, pastoring, tongues, mercy, faith, giving, evangelism, leadership, and the list goes on and on. Some, he says, not all will have this special gift that comes from the sovereignty of God. In our spiritual gifts class that Grant teaches, this is the definition we use for this gift. The gift of celibacy is the special ability God gives to certain members of the body of Christ to remain single and enjoy it, to be unmarried and not suffer undue sexual temptation. So Paul says, now to the unmarried uh, widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. If you're not married, your time, he says, your money, your life is not divided between the good and the best. You can give all you have to the kingdom of God. 
That's why later in the chapter you say in verse 32, a married man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided, as we just saw as the clapping happened a few minutes ago. Can you imagine the people hearing this and reading this for the first time? What? Are you saying, Paul, that I have to remain single? I, I can't get married? I, I, I can't find the love and companionship I really desire? Paul says, no. No, he says, I think you should consider singleness. But if they cannot control themselves, verse 9, they should marry. For it's better to marry than burn with passion. If you are not living contently under that calling, then begin the process of marriage. Now to those already married and also asking frequent questions about divorce and remarriage, then Paul says, let's have a chat. First he speaks to those who are already married and both partners are Christians. He points back actually to the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels. Verse 10, to the married I give this command, uh, not I but the Lord Jesus, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. The Lord Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, Christ, is Paul's final authority. He quotes, by the way, here an oral version of Mark chapter 10. But remember this, and this is important. As one wrote, Paul does not mention the exception Jesus allows on the grounds of porneia for divorce and remarriage. He's not writing a systematic treatise here on divorce. He's answering specific questions. Another put it this way, Paul cannot have interpreted Jesus' pronouncements on divorce and remarriage as including to cover every possible scenario, or he wouldn't himself feel free to add an exception in the next few verses. See, from Jesus, Paul actually moves to deal with an issue Jesus did not address because there was no church at that point. What do we do, he says, with spiritually mixed marriages? What happens when a spouse actually becomes a Christian? After the wedding day, some Christians 2,000 years ago feared that normal sex within their marriage to an unbelieving spouse would defile them before God. Don't miss this. Paul assumes, Paul assumes that every local church, there will be men and women in the church that are married to unbelievers after they've converted. Paul, Paul never believed that faith should be coerced or forced at all. Religious independence in marriage is striking for this time in history. Paul says this in verse 12, To the rest I say this, it's I, by the way, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, uh, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer who is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. The Christian, he says, should stay and not divorce the spouse because they don't want Jesus as Savior, leader, and Lord. The believer may not initiate divorce for this reason. And to the question at hand, a Christian standing before God is not diminished or compromised because they're married to a non-Christian and love that non-Christian and regularly as they should have sex with that non-Christian. But, and there is a huge but here, there's tension introduced Most of the time when a wife or husband becomes a follower of Jesus, you see, they now have a new Savior, a new Lord, a new allegiance, which according to Christian teaching is even more important than 
the current family or marriage. See, the line of old and new creation, light and darkness, is actually found in the close quarters of marriage. And this gets even more tense when the other spouse is, well, maybe agnostic or atheistic or a nominal Christian. They have the title, but they don't care. Or they follow another religion or God or even a spiritual idea. Sometimes it actually becomes the reason for the marriage breakup, which ends up in divorce. It becomes intolerable for the unbelieving spouse to put up with this Jesus stuff. And that's where Paul speaks about divorce and remarriage. For an unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. The unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean as it is they're holy. But, ready? If the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us as Christians to live in what? Peace. See, the case is different if an unbelieving spouse doesn't want to stay. If they leave, the believer is not bound. Now, everyone put their thinking caps on, because this is important. That little phrase, is not bound, is absolutely important to understand Paul. This means that the more innocent partner is also free, ready, to remarry. It would be a curious expression to use if Paul meant a Christian is bound to remain unmarried. Not his point. It is the same language that Paul uses at the end of the chapter and in Romans 7 for widows. By law, he writes, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Paul says divorce is a real possibility when things go south, live in peace, but so is remarriage. But then he stops, and he quickly responds again, knowing that there is a need to repeat the call to stay till the very last moment. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You don't know whether as a believer you will lead your unbelieving spouse to Jesus. As he said in verse 14, you actually as a Christian, whether you feel it or not, bring the very sanctified holy presence of God into that marriage. Keep going as long as possible, he says, in the hope that the one that you live with, the one that you love, the one that you sleep with, will actually meet Jesus as Savior, Leader, and Lord. God has called us to live in peace. Perhaps you will be the very one that leads them to the one that you have fallen in love with. Jesus. Now I want to stop right there like I did last week and review today, last week, and a few weeks before. Number one, what have we learned? Number one for Christians, marriage, according to Paul and Jesus, is the highest form of human covenant. We should fight for our marriages if we're married. We should see them through the eyes of heaven, not like modern legal contracts. They are the will of God, and they are supposed to be permanent, lifelong. They are acts of worship for Christians. Paul reminds us here of the importance of the sexual side of our marriages. It needs to be regular, he says, and mutual. Now, if this facet of your relationship as a Christian is suffering, or let's be honest, if it has died, you need to first of all go before God and begin to pray about it, ask for power of the Spirit of God to help you here to resolve this. You need to talk about it with other Christians, elders and pastors, people in your small group if you're willing. And if the issue is really severe, you need to reach out and get some help. You as a Christian husband and wife must be involved sexually if you can be. And if this is a real battle, it is time to begin to resolve the months or days or years of pain because God has ordained this for you and you are bound together this way. And it is a beautiful thing. God calls some of you this morning to think on this. Two, divorce is allowed for followers of Jesus in cases of sexual misconduct. That's last week's message and for the abandonment by a non-believing spouse. Though divorce is always a result of sin, not all divorce is sinful. 
The goal here by Jesus and Paul was to actually give freedom for people bound in dangerous situations. Three, does Paul say I can remarry with God's blessing if a spouse leaves me because of my faith? Yes, he does. I love what Richard Hayes wrote this, thinking caps on. Does the declaration that a believer is not bound imply the freedom to remarry in this situation? Paul does not address it explicitly, yet the general tenor of Paul's advice throughout the chapter is clear. Let's walk. The unmarried person should not seek to change their status. It's better to remain single and serve the Lord with undivided tension. At the same time, if they choose to marry, you're not sinning. Would a similar discretionary freedom be granted to a believer, a believing spouse abandoned by an unbeliever? It's difficult to see anything against this within 1 Corinthians 7 or in Paul's letters. For him, what mattered most was one thing, how to serve the Lord with undivided devotion. It's difficult to come away from this chapter thinking that Paul places a categorical prohibition on remarriage for the believer described here. Rather, and this is the great phrase, Rather, he would invite that believer to engage with him in a process of discernment how they could serve God best in the time that remains, whether single or remarried. I think that's why Paul's words to widows at the end apply here. But if a husband dies, she's free to remarry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. The qualification is if you remarry after an unbelieving spouse leaves you, you must marry a follower of Jesus. Jesus talks about this explicitly. Don't be unequally yoked. Four, well, John, thanks for all of that, but you haven't really dealt with the real tough one we've been waiting for you to deal with. What about the other issues not talked about in the Bible, John? We all have them, but no one seems to talk about it. What about abuse? I mean, real abuse. What about a Christian that takes off? What about prolonged addiction like alcohol or or drugs? Or here's one, John. What about insanity? Deal with that one for me, would you? I spent a lot of time praying this week about this issue. Christians, sincere Christians, are divided on this. And as I prayed and talked and talked to friends and counselors and other pastors, I read something by a guy named Craig Bloomberg who really helped me. He's a New Testament scholar from Denver. And I'd like to read what he said because it summarizes where we hold as a church. The question remains open this morning to whether or not there are other situations where divorce and remarriage might be permitted, not mentioned in the Bible. A promising approach to that answering those questions arise when we ask one thing. What does adultery and desertion have in common to make divorce permissible in those two instances? If we recall, the foundational biblical definition of marriage is this, to leave, cleave, and become one flesh. Then it's noteworthy that adultery actually undermines the unique one flesh relationship and desertion makes it impossible to continue to cleave to one spouse, like to have sex. This suggests that what these two behaviors share is that they both dissolve a marriage even before some legal contract has, been, has occurred. To determine as a Christian if divorce is ever otherwise permitted, we need to ask if the circumstances prove as equally damaging that in all intents and purposes that a marriage becomes destroyed. And a divorce is doing nothing but acknowledging the fact that has already occurred. Rather than us as Christians trying to create some legalistic list of yeses and nos, each situation, here it is, should be considered by a case-by-case basis, including even adultery and desertion, since for us as Christians, reconciliation remains the ideal, if at all possible. Of course, to open the door to the possibility of other circumstances is to run the risk of people abusing that freedom, but also to legalistically say there are no other options 
actually will provide more physical, emotional, and spiritual damage. Here's the key. This is me speaking. Don't make the decision rashly and don't do it by yourself. Come to the church. Come to the church leadership for support and process. Paul shows us we must respond case by case. He was asked, think about it, he was asked about this type of abandonment, not the other issues. He was never supposed, this was never supposed to be a full list. He is responding to questions. That's why we must deal with this tough reality of divorce and remarriage together, prayerfully, biblically, and communally. Full of grace, mercy, and absolute truth. Jesus is not an either-or teacher. He's an and person. Well, five, John, uh, what if I got divorced or remarried, and you know what? It was wrong. And all the exceptions, that what Jesus says, it was just downright wrong. There are many of you listening, and I said this last week, that a divorce or remarried, and it wasn't done right, and you're asking the question, am I now a forever adulterer? Am I a second-class Christian the rest of my life? No. God comes and says one thing, Repent. Be honest about it. Admit you sinned, and once you say you sinned, there is forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9. Don't make excuses about it. Be honest about it. Be honest before the living God. I sinned, and God promises like all sin, he will forgive you. And if you're already remarried, he says, dedicate that marriage to God so you don't become another statistic. Be what you're called to be. Six, reconciliation. If the divorce was wrong and the former spouse is still willing or able, pray that it will be what's broken will be repaired. You know, with God involved, never discount his miracles. I said this last week. A lot of you may be unmarried at this moment or divorced, and your other spouse is not married. You're going, I don't know if there's ever, I could ever get back to them, or they could get back with me. I just say this to you. You know, when Lazarus died, I said this last week, when Lazarus died, Jesus showed up. He'd been rotting in a tomb for four days. Jesus walked up and said, move the stone. Lazarus, come forth. And suddenly there was life in a pit of death. Never underestimate the power of the living Jesus to bring back things that are stinking and rotting and dead back to life for new hope. Our God did it to us spiritually. He can do it with some of your marriages. Seven, what if the divorce took place before we were Christians, John? Well, it's very clear in Scripture. God wipes away everything. You become a new creature. That's not even part of the conversation. And lastly, eight, let me speak to a different group of you. I started with married people, divorce and remarriage, but then Paul talks to you who are single this morning or you who are single again. You need to ask a different question this morning. Would I be willing to be single for the sake of the gospel? Would I give more of my time, more of my money, more of my energy and life to God knowing that, of course, those things last? Don't be afraid as a Christian to say it out loud. It won't seal the deal. God is a good God and does not want you to be full of anxiety about this. He says, talk to me about this. If it is a gift I'm going to give you, I'm going to give it to you and you will enjoy it. Have the conversation with the living God. I I end with these words. You know, the world needs to see radical commitment. They want to see real faith, real Christianity, and real Christianity is played out in marriage. Real Christianity is played out in celibacy and singleness. And real Christianity is played out in how we deal with divorce and remarriage. Paul speaks directly into our culture and says, you live in Corinth. Make sure that as you live in Corinth, you are not infected by Corinth. Live a holy life so neighbors and friends and even spouses who do not know me see that the faith is genuine and real. Live differently for the sake of the glory of my Father. Let's pray. God, difficult words, difficult words for many of us, but thank you that your, man, your word is so relevant 
And so I pray a few things. Lord, for us who are married, I pray, Lord, right now for our marriages to remain intact. I also pray, Lord, for our sex lives publicly in the name of Jesus, that they would grow and be healthy and fun and genuinely loving. We pray for healing of any sexual relationship in this church that is not doing well in the name of Jesus. We pray, God, for those among us who have been through the painful reality of divorce and also remarriage. And God, there's so many issues, and we pray that you would speak directly into their lives, that you would clarify things. Lord, for those who did it wrong, forgive them, and may you give them hope. And we pray to you, Lord, for many of us among us who are single, who are struggling with what it means to be single. Lord, if it is your will for some of them to be single for the rest of their lives, we pray for that gift to be given to them so they will have absolute security and love in you in that way. And for those who are supposed to be married, we pray you'd provide spouses. God, hear our prayer, hear our complications, hear our sin, hear everything that we are. Set us free and lead us forward as a church so we'd be honoring to God and faithful witnesses to a dying world. In Jesus' name, amen.